I was the uh, pilot in command of Super 64, which is one of the Blackhawks, and I was actually leading an element of aircraft, and, and that means my responsibility is to fly, in this case, four aircraft into the target area and put troops on the ground. You know, the mission itself was to capture a warlord and some of his senior people. We'd been doing that for a couple of months when the Black Hawk Down mission occurred on October 3rd. You know, there wasn't a person involved in that mission who didn't put their life on the line that day for someone or to support the mission. And I think that's a real important message. Uh, you know, we, we get caught up in, in a lot of other things, but that, that selflessness and that commitment to each other and that commitment to the mission, I think, is, a, is at the core of the story. The manifestation of it for me is Randy Shugart and Gary Gordon, the Medal of Honor recipients, who, who came to our crash site. They insisted that, that they be dropped off, and they were, and that's why I'm here today. I went to survival school, and in survival school, they, they, you go without eating for three days, and they slap you around a little bit. And then, for me, having experienced it for real in the real world, it's not even close. In my mind, I died. When we crashed, I was knocked unconscious, and, and I think psychologically, that was the end for me. It was a violent crash. It, it, it was, you know, you could argue not survivable by looking at it. So you, you sort of have this rebirth, where now you have this second life, you thought your life was over, uh, and, and what do you do with it? I, I have tried to uh, raise the bar on myself, elevate my game, do things that I probably wouldn't have done if I hadn't had that experience. I've done a lot of things that, you know, I, 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 I would say stray outside the lines for me, but I did them because I realized I've already had a second chance. I'm not going to have a third, so I'm going to take full advantage of what's been offered to me. From a military perspective, this mission was a success. Uh, that mission that day was a success. We captured the people we were after. It, you know, if you define success from military perspective as casualties, the casualties on the other side far outnumbered ours. But we lost people. And, and anytime we lose people, we have such a high standard here with our military in the United States that any loss whatsoever is, is viewed upon with great speculation. But in the big picture, that's the price we're going to pay. I mean, if we're going to tr go try to fight ISIS, if we're going to go try to, to straighten out places like Afghanistan, people are going to die. And if we don't accept that going in, we shouldn't go, because that is the world that we live in. It's dangerous. These missions are hard, and uh, there will be a price to pay. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a very special guest on with me today, recently retired. Chief Warrant Officer for Michael Rutledge. Uh, how's it going? How you doing, John? Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for coming on. Um, the the majority of the guests that I have on the show are uh, people from the special operations community. Just to make it into that is d difficult in itself, uh, especially during a time of war and, and the amount of sacrifice that the special operations community has ha been asked to make in the last uh, 20 years or so, uh, and even further that, further back than that. But within special operations, you have a, a unique career path. Um, can we kind of talk about what led you into the military and then walk through your career a little bit? Uh, yeah, so I, I grew up as a, a farm kid in uh, Galesburg, Illinois. Did not come from a military family, per se. Um, my, my dad was actually uncharacteristically older than your average father. So he was actually a World War II veteran. Um, I was born in 71. Um, but of that era, 
of the World War II veterans. They hung around a lot. They kind of clung to each other. So there was always other World War II and Korea veterans hanging around our house. And uh, from the time I remember being four or five years old, I never wanted to do anything except be in the military. I didn't always have a clear view of what exactly I was going to do in the military, but I had never considered any other profession other than being a career military person. Um, so it kind of morphed from there and developed itself as my personality and uh, desires grew as I got older. But that's all I ever wanted to do. Um, I was a, a mediocre, if not a horrible student in high school. Had a great time, played lots of sports, pretty well-rounded. But uh, it was obvious early on that I was never destined for a, a collegiate career. Um, I was a pretty pretty decent football player, uh, a couple all-state teams, and I went to a Division One college to play football. That whole student thing reared its head again, and I got kicked out of the semester. So, oh no, I went and I, yeah. So I went and did what I should have done from the beginning, and that was enlisted in the U.S. Navy um, in early 1990. Um, so that was it, and uh, I always wanted to fly. And so my first two and a half or three years in the U.S. Navy, I was a helicopter rescue swimmer, or a helicopter air crewman thinking somewhere down the road I was going to go fly jets, but uh, I was obviously not smart enough for that. And then uh, I was stationed in Guam, which is kind of slap in the face for a farm kid from Illinois. If you're, anybody knows about Guam, it's about a 33 by 15 mile island in the middle of the Pacific, right. which, which is kind of like prison for a 19-year-old. Yeah. Um, and one day I was you know, working on the helicopter after flying for five or six hours and sweating in the tropic humidity. And uh, these guys with big muscles and long hair come off the back of the helicopter. And I asked somebody, I'm like, the hell do those guys do? And they said, well, they're Navy SEALs. And so much like you see today, you know, there's no books or movies or, you know, uh, anything to kind of really let you know what, what guys in SEAL teams did. I just knew that these guys had big muscles and they weren't sweating and doing the crappy job I was. So I went and signed on dotted line and said, I want to go to Bud's. I don't, didn't even really have a, an idea of exactly what it was. There was like one or two Vietnam-era books out at the time, and I devoured those. And so the next thing I know is six months later, I found myself in Bud's in Coronado uh, in Class 196 and graduated from Bud's and went to SEAL Team 1, spent about eight years at SEAL Team 1, and I still had the bug for flying. So I was flying as a civilian, went and got my private pilot's license, my instrument rating, commercial, commercial multi-engine. I was actually doing air shows and towing banners and towing gliders. And, uh, while, while you were in the Navy, while I was in the Navy in, in between, you know, six month long deployments and year long workups and, and, you know, keep in mind there was no war on at the time. So even though we were gone seven or eight months out of every year, there was still time in between, you know, that you could pursue some hobbies. So maybe not quite the sense of urgency that there was after September 11th. Um, so at some point during that period, I had the thought, I'm like, well, I'll, uh, I'll go be a commercial pilot. You know, when I get out of the Navy and, you know, it was kind of an arduous life, as anyone who's the SEAL teams or a special operations unit will tell you. So I wasn't quite sure I was going to make it to, to 20 years. So I was looking at other careers. And uh, a little side note on that is my wife was a federal parole officer at the time. Mm. And, uh, of course, I never paid any attention to how much money she made. I always thought I was like the breadwinner. Yeah. But you really find out – yeah, you really find out quick how much your spouse really contributes to the income – when they stopped working and then you realize your E6 or E7 paycheck was basically paying the utilities in Coronado. So what I realized really quick was her paycheck was paying for all of my fun flying, you know, and all these things I thought was just disposable income. So at that point, my flying came to a stop and I kind of came to the realization that uh, if I wanted to continue flying, I was going to have to go get a job, basically get out of the SEAL teams. 
So I went to try and get into Navy flight school, and they said, you're too old. I think I was 29 at the time. And uh, right about that time, we were working with the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment for various training evolutions, and then, of course, in Afghanistan uh, after September 11th. And I'm talking to one of their warrant officer pilots, and I said, hey, how do I, how do I get your job? How do I get to be a warrant officer aviator? He's like, well, you just got to apply. And then, you know, once you're a warrant officer, then you can apply to come to 160th. And long story short, I just did the same thing, went and signed on the dotted line. And uh, five months after we got back from that deployment after September 11th, I got orders to, to Fort Rucker, Alabama to, be a, to go to flight school to be an Army aviator. And uh, spent about a year in flight school down at Fort Rucker. And the 160th uh, gave me an opportunity to assess while I was still in flight school. And uh, it was a week-long assessment up at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I completed that successfully, and upon graduation from flight school, I was a designated Army aviator, packed everything we owned in a pickup truck, and drove up to Fort Campbell and started a 14-year career at the 160th flying MH-47s. So that's kind of the short version of it, John. Okay, so I wanted to ask you a few questions, kind of going back a little bit. Um, the first question is, where did your father serve in, in World War II? What, what branch was he in? So he was in the Navy, and okay. he, was on a, he was on a carrier in the Pacific. And is that kind of what like led you towards the Navy and to begin with? Or? No way. The movie Top Gun led me to the Navy. Okay, <laughs> that's right. Okay. I was easy. I was very impressionable. It was easy. Right. And um, so then, when you, uh, my second question <laughs> is, when you started in the Navy, you were a, um, you, you were in the search and rescue side of things. That's kind of you. Ha- you have to go through like a selection process for that as well, right? It is. There's, uh, I believe, it's a four month air crew qualification course down in Pensacola, Florida, and then followed by a three or four week, uh, helicopter rescue swim also in Pensacola. Uh, you know, and I kind of got into all that thing in some way at some point that that would transition into going to be a Navy pilot. Not really. Uh, there's not really the opportunity unless you specifically, um, pursue it, but that was an unplanned, uh, career deviation, which, you know, in retrospect, 30 years later was actually pretty beneficial one because I was a farm kid and I really didn't know how to swim. So had I had any aspirations of being a SEAL at that point, I would have made it anyway. Right. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's pretty arduous for what it is. Um, but search and rescue uh, swimmer training is obviously very aquatically oriented. It was a good introduction for what I was going to do later on. Although at that point, you know, I had no idea that I was going to go on to go to BUDS. Um, but it was an interesting, you know, three-year career um, as it was. You know, whatever, what, all, what other 19-year-old kid gets to travel three or four different continents and flying helicopters and, you know, got to do desert storm and, uh, was on the beach in Somalia when that took place. And so there's some interesting things, so I don't regret it at all. Okay. Okay. And, um, you know, when you went to buds, did you pass through your first time or did you have to go roll back or anything like that? Yeah. So I started, well, the answer is no, I started in class 196, um, went through hell week and I can't remember. I had some crud that was eating my leg. I don't actually remember what it was offhand, but I spent about, two weeks into second phase and uh, couldn't keep doing the runs and I got rolled back and then I graduated in class 197. So I picked up with them uh, their first week of second phase and then graduated with 197. Okay. Okay. So um, I wanted to ask, where were you when on September 11th? In sep- well, on September 11th, I was uh, a platoon leading petty officer um, and we were actually doing um, some training or some missions in Sri Lanka um, mm-hmm. during September 11th. And that's kind of an interesting story in that, uh, you know, that was before, of course, we didn't have cell phones at that time or anything that worked. We had satellite phones, and that was about it. And so we're sitting in this nasty little hotel outside Colombo, Sri Lanka, in the jungle. 
And uh, the only media they had there was about a, a eight inch black and white TV in the lobby. Mm. And, uh, you know, we had all of our guns and stuff in the room and the, you know, our radio stuff was sticking out one of the hotel windows and, and uh, somebody's like screaming like, Hey, Hey chief, come, come look at this, come look at this. And so we're all huddled around this little eight inch black and white TV as they're showing, you know, the events of September 11th. And, uh, as we're doing that, it was a BBC channel. And as we're doing that, the BBC kind of breaks into, you know, and obviously the, the U S is going to respond with special operations forces. And, and they go through this global map, uh, of the region of where all the special operations forces are located. You know, and it was kind of a doctrinal explanation, but, uh, and someone there and he said, and in Sri Lanka, there are 16 Navy SEALs in Colombo. Wow. Or like, what the hell? Um, so, what had happened, we found out later, was the ambassador to Sri Lanka, uh, once he was interviewed, the U.S. ambassador, once he was interviewed, you know, immediately after the attacks, of course, he was very proud to say he had Navy SEALs in his country and they were ready to respond to any contingencies, unbeknownst to us. Um, so we were kind of sliding through the country pretty pretty low on the radar, or just moving at night, covered vehicles. And uh, so, so pretty soon after that, everybody put two and two together, and I'd say probably within four or five hours, you know, there were... Uh, people coming up the lobby and saying, where are the Navy SEALs? Because, wow. you know, if, if you know anything about Sri Lanka, it's it's a, a Muslim country. Um, so that expedited, you know, we packed up all the vans, uh, went to the nearest airport and had an MC-130 come in under the cover of darkness and just dropped the ramp. We threw all our boxes on and hopped on the C-130, and, and that was our ride out of Sri Lanka, basically, to start the war. Um, but that's my most vivid recollection of September 11th, other than, obviously, like everyone else, having that feeling of helplessness you know, wondering if it were, you know, wherever your family was at the time, if they were the ones who were going to get attacked next. So that's right. kind of a rough period not being home. Right. And um, so then after that, did you, you deployed to Afghanistan as a SEAL? Yeah. Uh, yep. So we came back, everybody regrouped, um, sent off to different directions. I mean, all the teams were basically reconstituted in Coronado and then the East Coast as well. Um, and that was a, that was a pretty short uh, deployment. Of course, at that point, before they, the government really came up with a strategy, uh, everybody wants to go to deploy and fight at that very second. Right. So, you know, some guys got to go out the door, some didn't. Everybody eventually got to, but, of course, everyone wanted to do that very first uh, assault into Afghanistan. And, of course, you know, supply and demand was the issue at that time. Right. Like, obviously, not everybody's going to get in on that. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, of course, nobody expected the war to last 16 or 17 years either. So everybody gets some. Right, that's right. Yeah, I remember. Um, I think initially the the plan was, um, you know, kind of hit quick and get out kind of thing, uh, and then you know situation changed and stuff like that. Um, so, obviously during that that time period, the the situation on the ground was fairly different from then what it's been the last couple of years now, right? Uh, or, or yeah, would you say the same? Or? No, I think it's vastly different. Um, for a couple different reasons. Uh, one, there's a lot of emotion tied, you know, with our first assaults in Afghanistan after 2001, a lot of emotion. Um, I'm not sure that there was any force in the world that could have come toe to toe with the attitude that the U S military had at that point. Um, and there was a lot of resolution and conviction or excuse me, a lot of resolve and conviction, uh, of the mission. And I think you got to remember too, after this long, you literally have children of those of us who were doing the first assaults, that now are in the military deploying. And when you start having generational changeovers um, in conflict, it kind of changes the flavor of things and maybe 
at some point dilutes, you know, like I said, dilutes the resolve of why, uh, everyone's there. Right. Um, you know, it's kind of a weird, kind of a weird thing to think about that. And of course, conversely, uh, right before I stopped deploying in 2016 to come to West Point, we were, we were capturing guys on targets that were kids of people we captured, you know, in 2004, 2005, 2006. Um, so yeah, I don't know what to tell you about that, except, you know, 20 years down the road, we're going to see some interesting effects of a war that lasts that long. Right. I mean, even like even in within Afghanistan, within the, the tribal conflicts that they have, it's generational. Like these these guys have been fighting each other for 60 years or even longer, you know, things like that. That's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people kind of forget about that. Right. Um, so I wanted to ask. Um, you know, the SEALs have been around, the, the forefathers of the SEALs have been around since World War II. And then uh, SEALs were activated uh, for Vietnam or right before Vietnam. And then, you know, they have, SEALs have a very uh, sort of storied history. Um, the 160th is the most elite flying unit on the planet um, in history and... Um, especially for what they do and what they specialize in. Can we talk about some of the history of the 160th and how that came about? Absolutely. Um, in 1980, you know, if anyone actually studies their history, um, the 160th was born about the failure of Operation Eagle Claw in 1980 uh, right. to rescue the Iranian hostages. Um, and that was a, a valid attempt by some extremely, extremely innovative and brave um, men and women and unfortunately, at that time, the whole joint special operations environment that we we know and work well within today didn't exist. Uh, everybody kind of worked as what they refer to as their pillars of excellence. You know, the Marine Corps was great all by itself. The Army had their own stuff. The Navy was doing their own thing. And and so, but when you do something on that large of a scale across international borders, then you realize, you know, you need all the services to work together. So. The Army was going to fly it, but they didn't have aircraft that were capable of the mission. The Marine Corps had the aircraft, but they didn't have pilots. And, I mean, there was a whole bunch of other things going on. Um, ultimately, it was a failure and certainly not on anybody's desire to make it work. It was literally a, a capabilities failure. So through that, um, you know, the Warren Commission came out and said, hey, we need to put all these together. And so through that was, was born the actual joint special operations concept. And so they decided – you know, aside from the assault forces, we need dedicated rotary wing aviation support that does nothing but support special operations forces. And that was pulled from elements of the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell, which is part of the reason that the 160th is headquarters at Fort Campbell, Kentucky now. And that was the beginning of the 160th. They started with Black Hawk and OH-6 um, Cayuse helicopters, and it's grown, you know, into the global power that it is right now. And, and I will agree with you. Um, I think something can be said about equality across the forces when you're talking about Rangers, SEALs, special forces guys, you know, special tactics teams. Um, but there is no helicopter unit in the world that performs to the standard um, or completes the missions that the 160th does. Right. And I, I mean, I've podcasted with um, allied special operations uh, personnel, people from the UK and um, even some of the French and, and people have just spoken so highly about um, the, the pilots from the 160th, um, you know, Australians, British, and uh, I, I'm not sure that other countries even have that kind of capability, or at least to the size that the U.S. does. No, uh, they don't. And, you know, some of it, 
as people will ask me, well, you guys must be super pilots. And, and I tell them quite frequently, um, you know, the 160 doesn't do anything that any other, we'll say, Army aviator uh, can't do. The unit is simply resource for success, and they set a standard, an unfailing standard, um, that's not allowed to be compromised. You know, the Night Stalker motto, we will put you on the ground, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, we'll put you on the ground anywhere in the world, plus or minus 30 seconds, guaranteed, and we will always, always pull you out. That's why their motto is Night Stalkers Don't Quit. I mean, it sounds kind of trite, but if you read into a little bit more, it means we will do absolutely anything in our power to 100% guarantee you we'll get you in and get you out. Um, and I can tell you from an operator point of view, being on the ground, when you have that in the back of your mind, you can accomplish things that you normally couldn't when you're worried about, are you going to get home at the end of the day? Right. Having control of the, the airspace and then having that capability, uh, I would imagine, uh, makes things a little easier for you, at least mentally anyway. It does. It does. I mean, you know, when you're talking about uh, stacking the deck in your favor, um, assaulting a target is one thing. Knowing how you're going to get home safely is, is another. And taking that off the operator's plates, you know, is a big deal. So how long after when you got back from Afghanistan um, as a SEAL, how long was it until you were officially a pilot uh, in the 160th? Uh, I got noticed that I was going to – I got orders for flight school in January or February, and I reported to Fort Rucker. I hung up my Navy uniform on June 30th, I think, and July 1st I was a warrant officer candidate down at Fort Rucker. Um, I didn't graduate flight school until October of – so a little over a year, like 13 months, October of 2002, uh, I graduated from flight school as a as a winged army aviator and reported direct to Fort Campbell for the 160th. Okay. Okay. So then you you've spent the majority of uh, the war as a pilot. Uh, I did. Yep. Okay. And and how is there? I mean, obviously there's differences in culture and and things like that, but. Um, being in a special operations unit, I'm sure there are some similarities regardless of the branch. But w was there huge differences in culture and stuff like that, being a SEAL and then being an aviator in the 160th? Um, there there are. I will say it translates really well um, because special operations is special operations. Everyone has the same mindset, the same um, initiative, drive. You know, Everyone has the no-fail attitude. So it translates really well. Um, there are some cultural differences. Um, you know, you got to remember too that that anybody who's in Ranger Regiment or SEAL teams or Special Forces ODA or uh, Special Tactics team, any of those guys or, or gals that are in there, um, you know, it's, that's a special breed of person. And not to say that 160th uh, personnel are not, um, but I would tell people said, hey, just remember, you know, we're really special pilots and well-trained pilots and, and crew members, and we fly highly special aircraft. Um, you know, but we're not necessarily operators. We're facilitators, you know, to help the operators accomplish the mission. So, you know, a better term is basically we're, we're enablers. Um, now, like I said, we're the best helicopter pilots and crew chiefs and flight engineers in the entire, you know, in the entire world. Um, but we're not door kickers. And so with that's a little bit different mentality. Right. Right. Um, and I, I think, probably one of the first instances where the public kind of got a, a, a taste of or even an understanding, or maybe that's not the right word, but the first kind of picture of um, special aviators was in Mogadishu. Um, 
Yeah, that was that was the first true test. Now the 160 has pulled off some pretty heroic acts that that escaped public viewing prior to 1993. Right. Um, that that just happened to be the first time it was brought to the public eye, um, and that's only because had that had that gone according to plan, you know, and there were no crashes or fatalities, you know, that too would have kind of went down in history without much notice, which right. is the intent. That's kind of the way we wanted it. Right. Absolutely. And. Um so we, we kind of spoke briefly to the podcast and, and uh, you know, we kind of mentioned like how just in, in, in the current day and age, some people who get out the military, they're kind of chess beaters. And and then some people, without naming anybody, some people have kind of given a bad reputation as to certain things. Um, why is it important to you to kind of n- steer away from some of that? Uh, well... To be quite honest, um, for for every person you see out there that that has kind of telling the world how great they are or, or things they've done, um, I'll be the very first one to admit there are there are people, true American heroes, who have sacrificed and fought, you know, more than any of us can actually put into print or a movie or articulate in a book. Um, and these are women and men whose names we will never, ever know. Right. So I always, I always try and remind people, I'm like, Hey, for every guy you see out there that wrote a book, there's 20 of them out there who are, are retiring quietly into obscurity. Um, you know, that did the major, major amount of damage that made our country safe, uh, a disproportionate amount of fighting. Um, and so beyond that, uh, you know, I do a fair amount of speaking, I do some podcasts and, and stuff and, and one thing I'm always very, very conscious about is if I had to turn around and listen to this as one of my peers, one of my brothers in the SEAL teams or one of my fellow aviators or crew chiefs or flight engineers on the 60th, is there something in there that I'm going to have to answer for, you know, at a bar or a reunion or something like that? And uh, mm-hmm. talk about a burden, um, you know, because I still get together with guys from SEAL teams a couple times a year. And so you talk about a burden of having to get the correct story out and and humbly and correctly. Um, so that's that's more pressure than I'm willing to to sacrifice is basically you know the opinion of your peers right and I guess certain people in the community have gotten to the point where they they no longer I don't want to say maybe they don't care because maybe they do to some extent but if it came to them you know getting their name out and getting their business up versus um you know, maybe being rejected by their peers, they they would go the 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 uh, the route of you know getting their name up and their business out. Oh yeah, there's there's certainly a, a fair number that have have used their special operations background as a launching pad for for business, you know, speaking tours or whatever the case may be. And uh, not all of them, you know, there's some there's some true Americans out there, um, you know, that are preaching the word that you know you could say we're we're proud that you're out there. Just name a few, you know, Jocko Willink. Pure stud, pure American patriot, Jason Redman. I mean, there's several others out there. Um, the list of of the guys and girls that are doing it correct and using their powers for good, fortunately, is longer than than the list of ones that are discrediting um, the Brotherhood. Um, but they're out there, and and you don't even need to name names because everyone kind of knows who they are. Right. They're the ones that talk the loudest. The ones that that make the biggest drum beatings are usually the ones that are least accomplished, as I've always thought. So that's an interesting point you bring up, um, Jocko Willink. He, he has a, a fantastic podcast, and he's a he was a SEAL officer. I think he's a commanding officer. Um, 
and he, he, you know, he has the experiences that he has and, and that kind of thing, but he projects it in a way that's not like beating chest. And it's just, it's, it's different. And I think it's, some of it is the mindset that he has and, and from listening to his podcast, I don't know him. What I get from hearing him talk is that he has like an understanding of history and a respect of history. Um, and well, I, I wanted to ask you, like, as an officer, uh, well, I guess this could be for anybody, but specific, uh, specifically for you, um, is reading history and learning military history, even if it's not American, was that something that you found is important or is that important to you or do you think it should be? Well, two points, John, is, is one, if you're in the military, you should have a clear understanding of American history and how it shapes what we're doing now. And certainly military history, you know, and, and what combat and the decisions have made kind of got us to where we are. Um, but one little side note on Jocko, um, that I always think is kind of people find as a fun fact. I've been in 30 years and I distinctly remember as a brand new seal checking into seal team one. And I was an E5 and Jocko was an E6 and he was actually in training cell, which is the experienced seals that are training the other new guys coming in. And uh, although he had hair back then, <laughs> back then, Jocko was such a quiet, subtle professional, but he scared the hell out of me. <laughs> he was not a screamer. He was not a chest beater. But, you know, the first time I saw Jocko was him on the pull up bar doing pull ups with 245s, you know, on a belt around his waist. Um he wow. was a, you know, I hadn't seen him in years and years. He and I talk every once in a while. But, uh, you know, back then, this is before 9-11. Back then, he was a solid, well-thought-of, you know, pipe-hitting professional Navy SEAL that everyone aspired to be. So when I saw him kind of enter the professional leadership circuit, it didn't surprise me at all. And he's one of the handful of guys, like I said, that, you know, the first thing when you start doing speaking tours, sometimes the questions are, well, what do you think about, you know, David Goggins? What do you think about Jocko Willink? And I just got down the list. And of the couple of them, I'm like, Jocko Willink, true American patriot, one of the best SEALs I ever worked with or worked for, you know, and what comes out of his mouth should be gospel because he's one of the handful of guys who have walked the walk. And, you know, and he does it in a way that you can internalize it and you don't have to have, um, you know, you don't have to be an you don't have to idolize him to get the information out of him. He's given you the same information that he would give any of his peer seals. So, like I said, there's a couple of them out there, but I have a ton of respect for Jocko Willing. Right. And is there any, so like just kind of as an example, like I guess after the the movie 300, um, there was a, a bit of a, a light kind of shown on Spartans, at least for like American sort of patriotic culture, you know, uh, when we're talking about people not giving up their guns and, and that kind of thing, people have adapted some of the, the phrases uh, that they've seen in the movie or read in the book. Um, is, is something like that important to you? Or or like if, you know, there's a, a young kid listening who's 18 and he wants to, to join the Navy, would you recommend, uh, you know, reading things like that or, you know, reading about the Spartans or, or for example, the samurai, stuff like that? I want to take a minute to talk to you about our sponsor for this week's podcast, War Dragons. War Dragons is a real-time strategy video game, and you can play it right on your phone. With over 150 different dragons to breed, each has different attack styles and abilities. The month of July is the month of our independence. War Dragons is partnering with Stack Up 
an organization dedicated to bringing military personnel, military veterans, and civilians together through a shared love of video gaming. War Dragons will match all donations made through the link in-game between July 4th through July 31st, up to a maximum of $10,000. Donors will also get an in-game portrait. If you can't donate but you want to support Stack Up's work, Breeding Your Dragons in-game can also help contribute an additional $10,000 donation by War Dragons. Download War Dragons. Visit podcast.wardragons.com slash recon on your phone or tablet for more details on how to participate. That's podcast.wardragons.com slash recon. Um, yeah, believe it or not, I'm, I mean, it sounds kind of trite, but one of my favorite movies, and I've got two teenage sons, one of my favorite movies is 300. Mm. You know, and it's it's kind of cartoonish and comic bookish, but if you get the pretense of that first 20 minutes of that movie and how the Spartans lived their life, um, how Leonidas raised his sons, how the Spartans raised their sons, what they thought about community and brotherhood and loyalty, um, and not to get too you know deep and meaningful, but very particularly if you look at how the Spartans treated and revered their women in yep. a time in world history when women were not well thought of other than making babies. Right. Um, you understand you know, why the Spartans were such powerful warriors. It wasn't just because they trained all day because any goofball can go out there and, and shoot all day long or practice combatives or, you know, whatever they're going to do. But there's more to it, um, to being a complete warrior than just learning how to fight. Um, so yeah, I highly, um, highly, uh, encourage reading some of that. You know, you got to pick and choose what's real and what's not. Um, Stephen Pressfield, usually anything by Stephen Pressfield is a pretty good yep. uh, read when you're talking about warrior mentality. Um, there's several other authors out there. Um, there's some uh, pretty good uh, books out there if you got time to read. Uh, believe it or not, on a leadership model, um, I highly recommend Simon Sinek's Leaders Eat Last, mm. um, which is a really good one. It's, it's more – um, it's more based on corporate leadership, but he uses the military model to describe, you know, how to be a, a good leader and what it takes. Um, so you can do some reading. Sometimes you just got to get out there and, and do it. Uh, right. I will tell you one of the best books I've ever read. Um, and it's very near and dear to my heart because I flew on a lot of those missions with him is a, a book about Adam Brown. Okay. Uh, if you've ever, yeah, I've read, read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fearless. Uh, Su super touching, honestly. Yeah, uh, my teenage sons. You know, we kind of all get together and read it once a year. I mean, I can recite a lot of it by heart, but and not just because he's a Navy SEAL. I mean, you could. There's other text out there about guys from Ranger Regiment and Special Forces ODAs. I mean, there's there's hundreds of stories out there. It just happens to be something I can relate to. Um, but anybody who thinks that they're not good enough, I came from a crappy home. I'm not smart enough. I'm not fast enough. You know, read that book about Adam Brown and not just, you know, his heroics at the end of his life um, when he was fighting, but look how he got there and what he had to do to persevere just to get in the door of Bud's for Pete's sake. Right. You know, there's there's a lot of stories in there, um, as I always tell young people who think they don't have what it takes, um, not to be too, you know, self-depreciating, but I tell people, I'm like, holy cow, I was a fat band kid from farm town in Illinois. <laughs> You know, there is absolutely no logical reason why I should 
have spent any time in the SEAL teams, you know, been in the world's most elite military helicopter unit. I mean, none of that. I was a commander at West Point for Pete's sake. I'm not even smart enough to get into West Point, <laughs> but I was a but I was a commander here teaching cadets. You know, and that's not I was not an overachiever, you know, at any stage of my life. But when I tell some of these kids that you just have to want it. You have to want it and you have to not quit because no one's right. ever going to give you. People will give you the opportunities, but people will not give you the motivation or the intuition or the initiative, you know, to complete it. It's got to be on you. And that's what they got to find. That's what you have to find when you're younger. You got to find out a way to get it done. Right. And it's, um, it's interesting. Like in my life, one thing that kind of helped me go from like being kind of a goofy kid to getting a little more serious was when I, like I started to take working out a little more seriously. And, um, I, I, at a point I was doing a lot of calisthenics, like hundreds of push-ups and pull-ups and dips and stuff like that. And through that, and, and this is just like my personal experience, but through that, it's like, you know, you're, you're doing sets of 10 pull-ups and you're doing them for an hour. You know, by the third or fourth set, the fourth, the third or fourth rep is, is really uh, hurting you, but you have, you have to kind of finish when you're done versus uh, finishing, you know, when it hurts. So, um, it's it's some of that mentality, and, and the thing that's cool and what I like about a lot of the military-based um, stories or Jago or a book like Fearless is that kind of the lessons that you can learn from these books they apply everywhere in life. It's not just military stuff, you know. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I do a fair amount of, of speaking, keynote speaking to, you know, college division one teams and a lot of high schools and youth groups and stuff. And, and, you know, when you see those 16, 17, 18 year old faces, which now that I have teenagers that are that era, I realize what a difficult period in their life it is, you know, cause you're, you think you're an adult, you kind of think you're badass, but in reality, you're kind of afraid. You're not quite sure how, how this adult thing is going to work out. Right. Um, and there's a couple things I always tell them is, you know, quitting, Quitting anything is toxic. It's as toxic and addictive as alcohol, drugs, you know, nicotine, whatever. Um, it's addicting. And if you start down that road, every time you quit something, I don't care how benign or, or insignificant you think it is, every time you quit something, it etches a little groove in your head. And every time you quit, you know, I'm kind of personifying it, but every time you quit something, that groove and that habit becomes deeper and deeper ingrained. And when you face something difficult, and that fight or flight response takes in, you are always subconsciously going to go to the path of least resistance. And that least resistance is always going to be in that trough, that groove that you've dug in your brain, right. that it's easier to quit than to fight through it. And that has nothing to do with SEAL teams, being in special operations or anything. That's just something you got to deal with in life. And so I always tell them, like, if you can't do anything else, just don't quit. If you want to put it in physical terms, if you have to run three miles – and you sucking it up and you're not going to make it at two and a half or two, then just walk, just do the mall jog, do a range walk, do something, but don't quit. You know, don't give up because the next time you do that, then you're going to go two and a half. And the next time you do after that, you're going to go two and three quarters. You know, it gets better, but you just can't quit. Cause you know, I tell my sons all the time and I have them say it in their head. If you quit once, you're always a quitter. And that goes for a lot of things in life. And so, if you don't quit and I tell them, you know what, you do not have to accomplish great things every day, but you have to get in the habit of giving your very best effort. And you know what? For some people, getting out of the bed in the morning is accomplishing something significant. It's right. all kind of in, yeah, it's all kind of in perspective of what you're dealing with at the time. 
Right, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, kind of speaking on um, Stephen Pressfield, someone recently created an Instagram account with the name Stephen Pressfield. I'm not sure if it's actually him or not. And uh, so he started following me because there, there was a point where I was kind of quoting uh, his book a lot, the, uh, the Gates of Fire, The Hot Gates. Yeah. And um, so he liked a couple of those posts. I guess he found it through the hashtag because I would, I would hashtag it. And then I'm po- I'm talking to a friend of mine. He was a uh, British infantry guy. He a couple of tours to Afghanistan and Iraq, and and he's also an author and he's a pretty good writer. So he sends me a message and he's like, "Do you think that's really Pressfield?" So I send the guy who I mean, this could be him. I have no idea. So I, I send him a message. And I'm like, "Are you really Stephen Pressfield?" And he's like, "Yes, I'm me." You know. So it, it was kind of a, a comical moment, but um. I would say that watching the movie kind of led me to be a little more curious about the Spartans and that story. So then I've read, a, uh, since then, I've read a couple of books about it. And um, last summer, I actually went to Thermopylae in Greece. And for some reason, I was expecting it to look exactly how it looked right. during those days. And then when I got there, I'm like, wait a minute, it's just like a, a highway in a regular town and the this what? the sea has since receded, you know, a couple of miles out, so you couldn't even see the water from, you know, they have like a monument there of the Oneidas and and some other stuff, but you can't even see the water from there anymore. Um, so it was kind of disappointing, but I don't know why. For some reason, I thought it would look exactly the same. Well, you know what they say, John, is uh, by the same token, um, I love movies, and and I have a lot of very romantic visions in my head about movies, you know, that have motivated me. And so don't ever go to universal studios. Cause when you look behind the curtain, you're disappointed. Right. So, you know, it's kind of just kind of keep those sugar plums in your head, uh, the way they are. Yeah. If you talk to, <laughs> if you talk to anybody who's tried to do the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem, it's kind of the same thing. You know, they go to Jerusalem, like Jerusalem is a nasty pit, you know, <laughs> good. Yeah. I mean, um, sort of the same thing. I think what's important is you take those ideals that Stephen Pressfield put in print or researched, and quite frankly, whether they're whether they actually occurred or it's myth or whatever, those principles are good guiding principles on how to conduct yourself as a warrior and a man. And it doesn't matter if they're accurate or not. You know, there's a lot of good things that come out in books, in print, and the movies that are not necessarily historically accurate. But it's what it does to your imagination that matters. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I wanted to to ask you. Um, a question that I want to kind of lead into it with this um, training for combat is is fairly dangerous, especially for special operations. Um, guys are jumping out of airplanes, or in in the case of a, aviators, you're flying in all kind of conditions which are are hazardous, and and people do get killed during training, and uh, it's very dangerous. I would imagine it's diff- it's supremely difficult trying to get to that level where you're an aviator in that unit. Um, and then through that difficulty and, and through, you know, you giving 110%, I would imagine that there are some moments where sort of hilarious things kind of take place. Um, do you have anything that kind of stood out to you that was on the funnier side through training or anything like that? Well, you know, you got to remember too that, uh, Whatever special operations unit you're in, and this is actually military-wide, it's not just spec ops, but, you know, you probably spend 70% of your time training and 30% actually doing something with it. So the shenanigans that go on during training are, 
you know, it's unlimited. As I tell people, if I, I get asked all the time, are you going to write a book? And I tell them, I'm like, well, if I write a book, you're going to be disappointed because there is no, hey, this is what a badass thing I did overseas and this is how I shot bin Laden. I mean, there's like none of those things. Right. It literally would be chapters and chapters of stupid stuff that I did and humorous <laughs> things that happened and things that people have done to me, you know, things like, does anybody know, you know, in, in Afghanistan, for example, or in Iraq, um, you know, there's those big blue porta potties everywhere. That is like, that's the token, token bathroom, token restroom in a deployed zone is porta potties. Well, you know, porta potties are not the greatest thing in the world. And one, they don't get service regularly. And two, um, you know, when it's 120 something degrees during the day and all the contents just bake, just not a great place to be. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to rat on my Ranger brother in a little bit because every time one of the Ranger regiment companies left town, you know, their calling card was getting all the porta potties that we had to use and they would crap on the outside on the toilet seat and then get on their C-17 and leave, you know? So at the time, you know, like if I see one of those dudes, I would shoot them in the face. But when you look back at it, you know, that's the kind of things that create some sort of levity in a combat zone because it sucks. But on the other hand, it's not something when you come back and you explain to your next door neighbor, you know, out in town for anybody to understand the ludicrousness and the humor, you know, that comes with stuff like that. Um, I mean, there's so many shenanigans. I could fill a book with both, you know, just training in the States and, and deployed stuff that just creates levity and humor. Um, I mean, it's it's endless and it's actually quite the bonding agent with the guys and girls that you're employed with because that's all you have. You know, um, the food sucks. Your sleeping condition sucks. Um, every night you're going out not actually knowing if you're going to come back or not. And so you put that on the back burner. So any little bit of humor and levity that can be injected into every day is kind of what you cling to. Um, you know, and there's no shortage of it at all. I don't know what it's like. I said, I haven't deployed since 2016. So political correctness may have put the squash on that. Um, but in the day, yeah, but in the day, you know, it was rampant. And did you experience these type of things in the Navy and in the army? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, now that they're old enough, my teenage sons will sit around, Hey, tell us stories about when you're in SEAL teams. And it's not there. I was stories. They want to know like the, the funny stories. Um, you know, unfortunately most of them involve, guys being drunk out in town and doing stupid stuff or, or getting hazed. But you know, one of the leadership, um, stories that I'll usually tell people is there was a a young Lieutenant that was out of buds, checked into SEAL team one. And he was an athletic stud, very competent, but he was a bit of an elitist. And, uh, one night after training, um, he was in my sister platoon. He wasn't in my platoon. And one night after training in Coronado, I said, Hey, sir, why don't you come to peas with us and have a beer? And he was like, no, no, it's fine. I'm going to go home. What he was going to do, polish his Dodge Viper or, or whatever he was doing. Because he did have a Dodge Viper. That was an item of contention. And they're like, no, sir, seriously. Why don't you come hang out with your platoon, be a man, that's some male bonding. Let's go to the bar. He's like, okay, I'll be there. Well, he didn't show up. So the next morning, you know, we had quarters at 8 o'clock or 7.30 or whatever it was. And, and at SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 3, um, there was a big set of stairs where the commanding officer, XO, command master chief, all walked down. We'd all be assembled there, you know, in formation. And uh, we all get in formation. We look over our shoulder, and here's this lieutenant, you know, riggers taped to a spine board, and by his feet, hanging inverted from the boat crane, like 15 <laughs> feet in the air. And he had a big sign taped to his head that said, I'm too cool to have a beer with my men. <laughs> you, know, which, nice. you know, which at the time you think is kind of hazing, but, um, 
you know, the commanding officer and the command master chief came down and they did their, you know, salutes to all the platoons and put out the word. And his very last thing he looked up and he said, Hey, Lieutenant, I'll bet you'll go have beer with your men next time. <laughs> you know, so when you have that kind of mentality and support, I mean, there's, there's tons and tons. I, I would have to think, and I probably should have written some down for, for my kids someday, but just stuff like that, that it's not harmful. Nobody's getting hurt, but there's points to be made. Um, but at the same time, some of the funniest things that you'll you'll ever see, and and that we all know, you know, not necessarily can be duplicated or tolerated uh, in the civilian world. Right, right. Um, so you you mentioned the political correctness. Um, is that something that's creeped into into your community as you you know as you were kind of on your way out of the the combat side of it? Um, you know, to tell you the truth, when we say political correctness, I guess it has a couple different faces. You know, can you, I've been in 30 years. Can you have, you know, pictures of uh, naked women hanging up at your desk anymore? No. Um, and quite frankly, I'm not so sure that that's a bad thing. Um, right. You know, can you, whatever, can you belittle people for their sexual orientation? No. And, you know, with a little perspective behind you and a little maturity, um, I get asked about that every once in a while. And I tell them, I said, I, I don't care who you go home with tonight. I don't care who you sleep with. I don't care what your gender is. I don't care if you've got a ponytail or not. All I care about is if you're next to me, you accomplish your job um, to the best of your ability and you keep me alive. Right. And that's all I care about. Now, if you'd asked the 19-year-old me, you probably would have gotten a different answer. That's why I tell people some perspective is is what changes that. Right. Um, but having that perspective is pretty key when you start mentoring younger people, you know, and they're hanging on every word you put out. Um, so it changes as you get older. But uh, political correctness – you know, like I said, some of the, most of the things that we've implemented as a, as a military and a society, I don't think are bad things. Um, and as everyone knows, the, the military is a direct reflection of society. Right. So we try out all the social experiments on the military first, see if they work, and then we put them in society. Um, I enjoyed my career in the military to the very last day as much as I did the first day 30 years ago. So I can tell you, whatever has been implemented in the name of political correctness, um, you know, didn't necessarily seem to affect our effectiveness. Uh, I will tell you that I think one of the greatest things that we have done is implement women into combat arms. And that's not towing the party line. Um, that's just breaking down some barriers. And I was fortunate enough to see some some true female warriors doing the deed in places where previously only men had been allowed, both in the 160th and Special Operations Assault teams. Um, and you know what? Yeah, they can't carry maybe a 100-pound ruck and they got a ponytail. But who gives a damn? Um, they're warriors and, and I'll kind of preach that gospel, um, you know, to anybody who will listen. You know, that, that's an interesting perspective. Um, a couple of years ago, I was in Colorado Springs, at a friend of mine, he was retiring out of uh, 10 special forces group and, um, he retired and then we, we went to a restaurant and then a couple of people went back to his house and, um, we were sitting around the table. It was him, who he had just retired, uh, active duty guy. And then there was a Vietnam, a special forces Vietnam veteran who was there as well, uh, who's a good friend of mine. And the the topic of women in combat came up. I mean, we weren't recording anything. You know, this wasn't for a podcast. We were just having a conversation. And um, the guy who was active, he's he said that he's... Uh, he he served in in a, a few different special operations units, um, and he said that he served with women in actual gunfights before, and he's been with women who had uh, who had done been effective in in a gunfight, um, 
you know, he didn't say where or anything like that. But he said what he thought was an issue would be the men's reaction to, <clears throat> let's say, a woman getting shot. Uh, you know, there's certain protocols, uh, you know, how you how, how do you get to them and, and give them medical treatment. And he said he felt like the issue wouldn't necessarily be the women because if, if the women can get to that point already, then they're they're obviously um, good at what they do. But he he said he felt like it would be an issue just because of how the men might react. Well, there's there's certainly a potential for that, but uh, you know, it's no secret since the war has begun, we've had dozens and dozens of of women injured and killed in combat, and there's nothing really to substantiate. You know, the claim that women or that men react differently to female comrades injured or killed in combat, um, you know, it's tragic because they're mothers, which I think on a, a masculine note has a, a uniqueness all in and of itself. But, right. you know, other than that, um, on a kind of a sexual harassment note or a sexual differentiation note, um, the female cadets that I taught at West Point, I would kind of take them to the side. I get the seniors before they graduate uh, in a leadership course. And I would tell them, I'm like, you know what, you're you're about to enter a force where, you know, sexism, racism, bias, all these kind of things exist. Um, and you're going to have to deal with it, you know, or you can use it as a crutch and an excuse of why you're not going to succeed. I said, is it fair? Absolutely not. But it exists. I said, and just understand my perspective is I don't think there's a problem with women in combat roles. There's a problem usually in how we as men interact with them and view them. That's the problem. Right. And. Again, with some mature perspective, like I said, if you asked me 20 years ago, totally different story um, because I was immature and the 22-year-old me has a different perspective on women than the you know the 48-year-old me. Um, but it's how we react to them. And, you know, people will say, well, I knew this and I just – I'm in a, limited to what I know. You know, let's talk about Army aviators. And I've had tons of guys say, well, I knew this, you know, this female pilot, 82nd, and she was horrible and blah, blah, blah. I'm like – yeah, but that's a ratio, you know, army aviation, there's 20% or maybe even less of female aviators. Um, so yeah, when you get a bad apple of that 20%, you know, it stands out like a sore thumb. But on the other hand, I could tell you, you know, 10 army aviators that suck and shouldn't be wearing wings that are men, Right. but it doesn't really get noticed because there's the other 80% or 88%, you know, that are kind of, uh, not making them shine so much. So I don't think there's any more or less success rate um, in that particular demographic, female aviators, than there are male. It's just more glaring because there's less of them. Um, you know, and I, I uh, a regiment commander one time was a Colonel Evans, now uh, General Evans, who's head of the Cadet Command in uh, uh, Kentucky, Fort Knox, Kentucky. And he was doing his rounds, and we were in Afghanistan at the time. And I remember very specifically when he came to our, our outpost in Afghanistan and said, Hey, men, we're going to start getting women pilots in the 160th. And I want to know what your concerns are. He goes, it's not if it's happening, it is happening. And I was one of the senior pilots at the time. And of course, all the junior ones, their very first thing was, we know, sir, they can't, uh, you know, they won't be able to hack it. They, they can't carry me out of a burning helicopter if I was wounded and blah, blah, blah. And, and I will remember at that time, Colonel Evans said one of the most impactful things I've ever heard a commanding officer say. And I plagiarized it and I always credit him for it. Um, but I've used it several times. And he said, you know what? You're absolutely right. Um, you know what? He goes, there may be some women out there who can't pull you out of a burning cockpit. He goes, but I'll tell you what. If you're going to use that as the defining metric of whether or not an aviator should serve in the 160th, he goes, I'm going to line every single one of you up. And if you can't carry a 180-pound male with all of his flight gear on out of the helicopter, I'm going to fire you and send you out to the conventional army. Mm. 
And when you think about it in those terms, there was a lot of long faces and not one, <laughs> one and not one single response. Right. So I think that says a lot for the mentality of, of how we as males view it. And when you start having to look inward, you know, it kind of changes everything. Right. Right. I mean, I, that's really um, kind of an interesting way to put it. But, you know, just kind of touching back on what you said, like, you know, there are in, in any profession, you know, lawyers, uh, doctors, professional athletes, there are bad lawyers. You know, there are bad doctors. There are not so good baseball players uh, that are a male, um, probably to a similar ratio for women in their specific, specific field. Um, and I just think it's an interesting point to bring up when you're talking about it. Because I've obviously being around military, retired military people, th- this is something that's brought up a lot. I would say a lot of the people I've speak to are, are against it. Um, but then the people who don't have an issue with it, you know, the, the approach is a little bit different. So it's it's just interesting to hear that. Yeah, you know, it's it's just a different perspective, and and I'll say for the third time. If you'd asked me years and years ago, my perspective is completely different. But, you know, as, as you grow and get some maturity, your, your, your view changes, your reasoning changes, you know, and your outlook on life changes. Right. So you finished your, your combat time in 2016, you said? Like you, that's when you were officially done with deploying and stuff like that? I did. I did my last deployment with the 160th uh, in 2016, and then I transferred to West Point in May of 2016 and just retired uh, May 31st, this uh, few weeks ago. Right. Well, congratulations. You know, that's um, 30 years is, is a nice amount of time, and especially with everything you've done in the military, and I'm sure it's a little bit of a adjustment period for you, um, kind of hopping off the speeding train. Uh, what what was it that you were doing at West Point? Um, well, I came to West Point. Uh, the commander of Second Aviation Detachment, which is the Executive Flight Detachment at West Point, has always been since about 2004 has been commanded by a, a 160th Warrant Officer. Um, so, a gentleman named Al Mack, who's a legendary 160th Flight Lead, was the predecessor uh, here at Second Aviation, and he asked if I would be interested in coming to command Second Aviation as my last assignment. Um, and of course I accepted because, you know, guys like us just don't get to come hang out at West Point for three years. It's a legendary institution. You know, it's an integrated part of American history as well as, you know, the preeminent leadership development institute in the world. So, um, you have to, you know, when you're asked to do it, you have to come do it because it's something you'll regret if you don't. Um, so I was a commander executive flight detachment here and one of my collateral duties, um, as a senior command warrant officer here at West Point was obviously to mentor, you know, and take care of other warrant officers. And then additionally, um, I taught leadership classes to the seniors, the firsties who were getting ready to graduate. I got them their last semester before they became lieutenants. Um, and quite frankly, that was probably the most rewarding um, assignment that I had at West Point. The flying was great. I got to fly some some impressive individuals, a lot of distinguished visitors, foreign heads of state, uh, flew President Bush, Secretary of State, Secretary of the Army, Joint Chiefs, um, a lot of very memorable people. Um, but the most rewarding and uh, thoughtful interaction I had was with these cadets that were going on to be lieutenants and leaders in, in our army. Right. And is that 
because you're able to pass down like you know these these points and information that will affect them throughout their career well i think it's kind of pompous to think that anything i have to say is going to shape uh you know somebody's future i think it was more of when you see these kids i say kids because anybody under the age of 25 is a kid um you know when you see these kids and you see what they've accomplished and what they're capable of one um it kind of renews your faith in the youth of america because if there's, you know, 4,200 of these students here at West Point, there's another 4,000 at the Naval Academy, another 4,000 at Air Force Academy, Coast Guard, you know, whatever, and ROTC programs around the country, you know, and you realize that America really is in pretty good hands. Um, and we probably are being a little bit cynical, you know, as every generation says, my, the, the next generation is going to hell in a handbasket and right. all that. So, I mean, I hear it. My parents said it. Grandparents said it. Um, so you know, when you see them, you're like, you know what, it's going to be okay. And right. have a lot of faith in our military, um, going forward and the army and Navy and, and whatever, because these are some pipe hitting young people. Um, absolutely. You know, and it's the same for the list of ranks, but you get up close and personal when you only have, you know, a thousand of them to look at a year and they're going to go on and they're going to continue to fight this war. Cause this war in the middle East is going to go on until I have grandkids. Um, they're going to fight this war and they're going to have the same problems or probably, you know, relearn uh, or rebuild the wheel three or four different times. Um, I mean, they're good. They're really good. And so to have a small part of that, that's really rewarding. Like I said, not that I think anything I've got to say is so profound that it's going to change your life. Um, but there are a few things when you've been in 30 years, at the very least, you don't tell them how to do things right. But I can definitely tell them how not to do things. Right. Um, you know, and not because I was any great leader, but because of all the things I know that I've screwed up, I could tell you, Hey, I tried this. It doesn't work. So I'll save you the pain. And those are probably some of the more valuable lessons learned that I passed on. Um, you know, but if you try and think, what were you like when you were 21 or 22? Um, you know, I was in the military, but I wasn't necessarily heading off to war. And every one of these soon to be lieutenants, they know where they're going when they put on bars, you know, they're going to go through their advanced training and they're going to get a platoon somewhere. And the next thing deploying, I mean, everyone knows that's their fate. Um, so when you look at them, you're like, all right, I want to give you whatever I can give you. I want to answer whatever questions there are, no matter how insignificant you think they are. And I want to get you out the door so you can have a successful career, at least for the first couple of years until you figure it out. And once you got it, you know, we all know once you've been in the game for a couple of years, um, you know, you're on cruise and it'll be okay. Right. Well, it, it's, it's kind of refreshing to, to talk to someone who served as long as you have and, and, to hear kind of this positive outlook on the future and not that everybody's negative, but I I do get a lot of the, um, you know, it was tougher in my generation and and the new generation self, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I think it's just refreshing to hear something a little bit different from that. Um, and you know, I want to thank you for coming on here. It, It was really great to, to talk to you. And a lot of my audiences are younger Americans who are, join the military or looking to join the military and I think to be able to get some perspective from someone like yourself is going to be uh, rewarding for them yeah it was my pleasure John and like I said that's that was one of the unexpected uh, benefits of this assignment was being able to talk to young people and I kind of find that's that's my favorite demographic or audience to actually spend some time with that's awesome so again you know thank you for coming on and doing this and thank you for your service as well my pleasure John thanks for having me on the show